Welcome to Red Enlightenment, a podcast on socialism, science, and spirituality. In this episode on science, we'll look at how to define science as it exists today, before turning to some of the history of scientific socialism, and then finally looking again at the post-colonial critiques of Enlightenment concepts like reason, and how we might respond. I hope you'll stick around for the rest of the episode, and the rest of the series. Science has rarely played as prominent a role in public discourse as it has done during this pandemic. Scientific advisors are now as recognisable as politicians, the development of vaccines are lead stories on the nightly news, and social media feeds are filled with popular science articles and viral videos explaining antibody production. Yet there has also been an equal and opposite backlash against science. Conspiracy theories about vaccines containing tracking devices or being placebos are rife, even accusations that the whole pandemic is an elaborate hoax to destroy individual freedoms. A lack of understanding about how science operates leads some to see the changing opinions of scientists as evidence of their unreliability, rather than the normal functioning of scientific inquiry. In the place of scientific consensus, individual mavericks purporting to be telling uncomfortable truths gain large followings. This spilling over from the now dissipated QAnon conspiracy movement continues to ripple through communities from the traditional far-right to healthy living in contemporary spirituality, or as Matthew Remsky's podcast calls it, conspirituality. The defenders of science are not always much better, however, veering hard in the other direction. Commentators like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Richard Dawkins frame science not merely as an important process for the development of knowledge, but as the sole arbiter of absolute truth, an infallible process representing the only route through which knowledge can be obtained. This is the difference between science and scientism. If something is scientific, it simply means it accords with the necessary or typical aspects of science. But scientism, to be scientistic, is to make science, particularly the natural sciences, the sole legitimate means of producing knowledge. It is an ideological position which elevates science to absolute truth, often distorting how science actually operates in the process. It is the kind of attitude which will, for example, deny the reality of unconscious racial bias for the many decades or even centuries that people have argued for its existence, but will then proudly announce that it has discovered unconscious racial bias after putting some white university students into a brain scanner and getting them to look at pictures of black people. Scientism is a form of dogmatism and reductionism by which I mean it reduces the complexity of the world to that which is measurable, rendering those parts of reality which are less available for testing through natural scientific methods simply as non-knowledge. This doesn't just include things that religious people might argue for, like the existence of God, but things like the quality of consciousness, or many social psychological phenomena which are not reproducible in a laboratory setting. So we're rejecting scientism in favour of a less dogmatic view of science. But what is science? For most people, science is a fixed body of knowledge accumulated over time, some of which they'll remember from school. Diagrams of atoms and molecules, plant cells, food chains, and so on. This is not an entirely inaccurate picture. There is certainly a sense in which knowledge is always built upon prior knowledge, and we can trace back many modern innovations not just to the early European Enlightenment, but into ancient history. Theories of atomism and materialism were found in ancient Greek and Indian philosophy, and the divisions of the sciences set out by Aristotle are largely unchanged today. The use of astrology for religious purposes was ubiquitous in early states, 
And although we today separate this from the scientific discipline of astronomy, it was only because of the astrological observation of the movements of stars and planets that the science became possible. The development of mathematics can be traced to early state practices of stock-taking and taxation, and the practical management of forests and waterways, particularly important in the early hydraulic states like China, laid the groundwork for later engineering. Linguistics was pioneered by the Sanskrit grammarian Panini, who lived at some point around the 4th to 6th century BCE, and whose work was influential even on the 20th century linguist Ferdinand de Saussure. And the development of medicine has been a gradual building of knowledge about the human body through practical experience, from Indian Ayurveda medicine, which was the first to enumerate the bones, muscles and blood vessels of the body, through to the Roman surgeon Galen, whose influence stretched from the 1st century to the 16th. But science as we understand it today is not just an accumulation of absolutely true knowledge. If that were the case, then previously secure scientific knowledge would never change. Yet we are aware of many examples of historical theories which have been superseded, such as phrenology and physiognomy, which claim that the shape of the skull and the features of the face mapped onto mental traits. Or the notion of phlogiston, a substance suggested as the source of combustion prior to the discovery of oxygen. And today, whilst quantum mechanics is strongly supported both mathematically and experimentally, the results still violate our normal understandings of reality. There have therefore arisen a variety of interpretations which attempt to explain that disparity, such as whether or not quantum phenomena imply the existence of multiple universes, and these cannot all be correct. Rather than simply accumulating in some single mass, therefore, knowledge systems go through periods of growth, stagnation, crisis and reformation, sometimes splintering into competing systems. This is possible because knowledge is never one and the same with the object it is studying. Knowledge is a human modelling of what the world is like, not a one-to-one -one reproduction of the world. In more poetic terms, scientific knowledge is the map, not the territory. Science can therefore also be seen as a method, a means of inquiring into the world. This empiricism, that is, knowledge brought about through observation, also has its roots in deep history, but became increasingly codified in Europe during the Enlightenment. Histories of science typically point to the Royal Society in London, founded in 1660, who famously made their motto, Nullius in verba, take nobody's word for it. Surprisingly, however, there is little agreement as to what exactly the scientific method is, or if there even is one. One of the most widely held views comes from the work of Karl Popper, who argued that falsification was central to the scientific method. With falsification, we begin with a theory, we test its predictions, and if we discover those predictions are incorrect, then we discard it. Knowledge would therefore proceed by negation, not the accumulation of facts. This is still commonly used as a benchmark in distinguishing science from non-science, or even pseudoscience, the so-called demarcation problem. But there are a number of difficulties with this idealised picture of the scientific method. For one thing, it does not accord with how science has actually functioned in history. Single experiments are rarely the death knell of a theory, and even a string of falsifications don't necessarily lead to a theory being immediately discarded. Imre Lakatos notes how Newton's predictions of the movements of the planets had, on a number of occasions, been shown to be inaccurate. Yet on each occasion the core of the theory was preserved, and additional factors sought to explain the discrepancy. In some cases this led to the discovery of new planets, and in others to the proposal of planets which we now know do not exist. But the theory as a whole was only superseded when a more attractive alternative theory Einsteinian relativity was developed, not when it was falsified. As well as problems with the notion of scientific method on the macro scale of theory building, 
it is also difficult to observe on the micro scale of daily scientific practice. A sociological study of science since Bruno Latour has revealed how messy and unlike this idealised scientific method laboratory science really is. Latour's study of laboratory experiments demonstrated that rather than a single precise scientific method, there was a far more chaotic, pragmatic approach to uncovering appropriate data, something that got lost in the careful writing of scientific papers. This is not even to mention that differences in practice between different disciplines make the notion of a singular, science-wide method difficult to imagine. All this multiplicity was what Paul Feraband controversially named epistemological anarchism, the denial that there even is such a thing as THE scientific method. If science is a collective, practical endeavour, that means thinking in terms of people, organisations, communities and events, like universities, research institutes, private laboratories and pharmaceutical companies that are running experiments, publishing papers, organising conferences and so on. This is what some would call a more materialist view of science, a perspective that brings in the brute physical and practical aspects of the world. It opens the door for the social critique of those practices, as seen in the feminist science studies pioneered by scholars like Donna Haraway. We can find biases in who gets hired and published, in what topics get studied and given prestige, and in the propagation of actively oppressive ideas like race science or the gender essentialism found in disciplines like evolutionary psychology. While some have taken this questioning of the objectivity of science as a questioning of reality itself, it need not be understood that way. The ideas that are socially constructed through scientific practice are not the same as the real phenomena being studied, they're just models. We cannot have direct access to a reality that is unmediated by human thought or practice. Nonetheless, we can still learn something about reality through the continued usefulness of our models in how they predict and explain the world. This is what Ian Hacking calls entity realism. The naive realist view, sometimes held by scientists themselves, is that our models of reality are actually direct representations of reality, whether it's a physical force, a chemical structure, a biological process, and so on. Entity realism, however, says that some entity does exist, but that our models of that entity are just tools to help us understand and manipulate them, and not accurate depictions. The distinction I would like to make here is borrowed from Roy Baskar, of the difference but compatibility of ontological realism and epistemological relativism. In other words, being committed to a real world that exists outside of human perception, but affirming that human meaning-making systems for understanding that reality differ between people, communities, cultures and historical periods, and none ever has indirect access to absolute truth. Baskar presents this not merely as a philosophy of science, but as being necessary to liberatory social movements. It affirms the possibility of a shared social reality like capitalism and other forms of oppression, but the necessarily different worldviews that will emerge out of it, and which must be articulated to build effective social movements. Given that scientific knowledge is multiple and fluid, often entering into competitive struggles, then there is clearly no such thing as a singular scientific ontology, but a variety. We can therefore find an initial entry point into these intellectual struggles by identifying those positions already closest to our own. We won't find much talk of class struggle, but those metaphysical concepts like process, relation, immanence and so on that we touched on in previous episodes, and which I will be directly relating to socialism in the next episode, do find expression in some scientific theories more so than others. In order to clear the ground for this comparative process, however, 
it is worth first taking a dive into the history of the interaction between socialism and science, beginning, of course, with Marx and Engels. Marxism today makes little or no contact with the natural sciences. Historically, however, science played a key role in the development of Marxist theory and practice, from its influence on the writings of Marx and Engels to the importance of scientific development for the Soviet Union. Even in Britain, a wave of scientists joined the Communist Party in the 1930s, including fellows of the Royal Society like J.D. Bernal and J.B.S. Haldane. The connection was largely severed in the mid-20th century, however, with the increasing distance between Western and Soviet Marxism and the controversies around Lysenkoism, the pseudo-scientific campaign against genetics that led to the dismissal of thousands of scientists and the imprisonment and execution of some of the most prominent. Under Stalin, the idea of Marxism being a science in itself, and one that extended not just into the social but the natural world, became a kind of dogmatic political cosmology that gave the party's pronouncements and actions the weight of scientific certainty. The break between East and West, scientific and non-scientific, was given a theoretical basis following George Lukacs' influential 1923 book History and Class Consciousness, which explicitly restricted dialectical analysis to the social realm. Lukacs eventually recanted this position in the preface to a later edition, but by then the damage was done. The subsequent work of Western Marxism, such as the Frankfurt School, was largely unconcerned with the natural sciences, restricting itself to culture and psychoanalysis. But socialist science cannot be reduced to Stalin and Lysenko. This ignores, for example, the Soviet communist psychologist Lev Vygotsky, whose ideas have received a resurgence of interest in the West in recent decades. And whilst there may have been sound reasons for a break with Soviet approaches to dialectical materialism, the gap between science and socialism has created problems further down the line. For one, a lack of scientific literacy among the left today is unfortunate, both in the context of the coronavirus pandemic and the escalating climate crisis. Until fairly recently, Marxists had been on the back foot when it comes to analysing the environmental impacts of capitalism, but the work of ecological Marxists such as John Bellamy Foster has helped to close this gap. Such approaches, however, have largely been aimed at ecology alone, rather than in relation to the natural sciences as a whole. Without such dialogue between revolutionary theory and contemporary science, the left both minimises its ability to understand and impact the ongoing crisis, and restricts its ability to renew its own materialism. In order to enable such interactions, we have to overcome the scepticism felt by many on the left and many Marxists towards natural science. The philosophy of science within Marxist thought is often associated with Engels alone and treated as a corruption of Marx's work. But as Helena Sheehan points out in her Marxism and the Philosophy of Science, A Critical History, such a dismissal is based on an extremely reductive reading of the relationship between Marx and Engels. Marx certainly never set out any comprehensive philosophy of nature, unlike Engels, who presented this in Anti-Dohering and the Unfinished Dialectics of Nature. But this alone does not demonstrate Marx's disagreement with Engels. Marx reportedly read Anti-Dohering in its entirety before its publication, and even contributed a chapter himself. He never raised any substantive objections to Engels' Dialectics of Nature in their decades of correspondence on the subject. Marx confirmed his agreement with Hegel's philosophy of nature, such as the dialectical law of the transformation of quantity into quality, and stated that it holds good alike in history and natural science. And as John Bellamy Foster and Paul Burkett have shown, Marx was deeply influenced by the natural sciences of his time, having drawn from Darwin's theories of evolution 
and the emerging science of thermodynamics, even in his later political economic writing. As recently analysed by Kohei Saito, Mox's unpublished notebooks on ecology show him exploring topics as specific as soil exhaustion, deforestation and agricultural chemistry, which seems to put a final nail in the coffin of this idea that Marx was unconcerned with nature. Rather than there being a philosophical divide between Marx and Engels, it is more accurate, Sheehan argues, to consider the relationship between them as a division of labour within a shared intellectual project, with Marx focusing on the political economic aspects and Engels on the philosophical and natural scientific. One common objection to developing a holistic scientific worldview is that this would involve metaphysics, something which Marx and Engels seemingly rejected. I've already dealt with this in the previous episode, but to recap, the notion of metaphysics that Engels rejects is specifically a rigid metaphysics, made up of static categories that are fixed, individual and eternal. If we draw on scientific perspectives which go in the opposite direction, those which are consistent with a process philosophy, where entities emerge from their histories, develop through their interactions and remain structurally dynamic, then we can remain compatible with Marx's thought. But as Anne Fairchild Pomeroy argues, there are two further criteria. One, we must engage with the concrete, that is, experience and practical activity. And two, we must recognise our own historical situatedness and thus fallibility, limitation and incompleteness. A second possible objection relates to mechanical materialism, a term used by Marx to characterise and dismiss the dominant science of his time. Mechanical materialism is a worldview that conceives of the universe as fundamentally machine-like, where, by understanding the motions of parts of the physical universe, we can ultimately come to understand all larger-scale phenomena. Thus, mechanical also tends to imply reductionism and atomism. That is, the smallest scale explains the biggest, and even the social and psychological are reducible to physics. When these principles are transposed into the social realm, as they were by thinkers such as Thomas Hobbes, you create an image of humanity that is antithetical to socialist politics. In his Leviathan, or The Matter, Form and Power of a Commonwealth Ecclesiastical and Civil, Hobbes develops the principles of matter in motion into a conception of human subjects as atomic, self-interested individuals, always on the brink of descending into a conflictual state of nature. We could also see the neoliberal ideology of Margaret Thatcher in the same way, with society reduced to atomic individuals and families alone. But that is not the only available scientific materialism today. Even by Marx and Engels' time, it was under pressure from Darwinian evolution and thermodynamics, with their images of an ever-changing universe, developing at one and the same time towards greater complexity and disorder. Marx and Engels brought the contours of this new dynamic scientific thought into their political economic theory, in discussing the evolution of the forces of production and of labour as a metabolic relationship of energy transfer between society and nature. Since Marx and Engels's time, the prominence of such dynamic perspectives in the sciences has expanded massively, with disciplines and theoretical frameworks such as complexity science and chaos theory, as well as the further development of evolutionary theory and non-equilibrium thermodynamics. A rejection of mechanical materialism is therefore not, nor ever was, a rejection of natural science itself. Lastly, there is bourgeois science. This was initially used by Marx and Engels to describe the work of political economists like Adam Smith, but in the Soviet Union it came to mean any science undertaken outside of a Marxist framework, and was often used to dismiss the findings of Western scientists as a whole. This can be seen, for example, in the rejection of the study of genetics by the followers of Lysenko, or in the vulgar Marxist attacks on Einstein and Newton. 
the notion that such sciences are bourgeois might be interpreted in one of two ways. That the original study was carried out without a revolutionary purpose within bourgeois capitalist institutions, or that there is something about the ideas themselves which somehow serve to reproduce capitalist bourgeois subjectivity and class society. With regard to the former, to dismiss any natural scientific study not carried out with a revolutionary purpose is at odds with Marx and Engels' own work. There was no communist intent in Darwin's writing, and arguably thermodynamics emerged in a specifically capitalist context, with the aim of making the blast furnaces that powered the Industrial Revolution more efficient. Clearly, original intent and function does not foreclose later application in unfamiliar contexts. If, on the other hand, bourgeois science is implying the reproduction of bourgeois subjectivity and class society through its ideas alone, then this is again challenged by contemporary holistic sciences. In the embodied approach to cognitive science, for example, the mind is not an atomized individual with essential qualities, but is a dynamic system that emerges in coupling with its environment, which develops historically through its activity, and which is culturally and socially situated. The mind is not a thing, but a process. We do, of course, need to maintain a critical eye when studying such work, because academics, tending to come from the middle class, may unwittingly bring liberal ideological tendencies into their work. But this note of caution is very different to arguing for the fundamentally bourgeois character of natural scientific concepts. Indeed, many of the advances in these disciplines are directly relevant to revolutionary organising, whether in understanding information flow in social networks, the embeddedness of consciousness in the world, the dynamics of chaos in moments of revolutionary rupture, or the principles of building resilient organisational ecologies. And far from representing a slide into idealism or bourgeois science, to do so is fully in the spirit of the Marxist tradition, as, to quote Engels himself, just as idealism underwent a series of stages of development, so too does materialism, with each epoch-making discovery, even in the sphere of natural science, it has to change its form. End quote. Following Marx and Engels, their philosophy of science was taken up by a new generation of Marxists. Especially important was a work by Engels entitled Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, an extract from the longer polemic Antidurring, which became one of the most popular and widely translated Marxist texts of its time. Here, Engels distinguished between, on the one hand, the philosophical and natural aspects of Marxist philosophy, and on the other, the social and historical. These later became known as dialectical materialism, which propounded the supposedly universal laws of motion of all things, and historical materialism, which critiqued the specific structure and dynamics of the capitalist system. This sharp distinction was not technically one made by Marx or Engels, but was an innovation of Soviet Marxists like Joseph Dietzkin and Georgi Plekhanov. Following the October Revolution, dialectical materialism became the official philosophy of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, and was further codified and popularised in Stalin's text, Dialectical and Historical Materialism. Whilst in the next episode we will touch on the more social-historical side, both in its classical Marxist and more contemporary forms, today I want to focus on this concept of dialectical materialism, and in particular how those two terms, dialectics and materialism, relate to a modern scientific ontology. The term dialectics can take on different shades of meaning. In its broadest sense, it generally refers to a perspective which foregrounds the motion of things, the relations between them, and thus sees entities as having histories and futures. For Engels, the dialectics found in the Hegelian system was one where, quote, 
For the first time, the whole world, natural, historical, intellectual, is represented as a process, i.e. as in constant motion, change, transformation, development. And the attempt is made to trace out the internal connection that makes a continuous whole of all this movement and development." End quote. In this sense, it is quite uncontroversially in sync with the holistic, dynamic, interconnected systems sciences that I've argued we should draw from. But dialectics is often given a more specific meaning. Engels sketched what he saw as the three laws of dialectics, a notion that he attributed to Hegel, but which appears to have been his own formulation. These laws are, firstly, the transformation of quantities into qualities, meaning that at a certain stage in the gradual evolution of a system, it undergoes a sudden transformation. Secondly, the interpenetration of opposites, meaning that every whole is constituted by internal struggle. And thirdly, the negation of the negation, meaning that development proceeds by a prior state being negated and a resolution being reached. You often hear this latter law expressed in the triad thesis, antithesis, synthesis, although this again was not actually Hegel's terminology, but Fichter's. Whilst later thinkers modified the number of laws, two for Lenin, four for Stalin, one for Mao, the idea of central dialectical laws remained. On the one hand, these laws all have fairly close parallels in contemporary science. For example, the transformation of quantities into qualities resembles modern notions such as emergence and thresholds, bifurcation points and phase transitions, each representing an aspect of the process of order emerging out of chaos, where small perturbations lead to sudden systemic changes. The problem with codifying these essential laws, however, is firstly that they underemphasize the importance of dynamics not covered by those laws. There is no reason, for example, that the second law of thermodynamics could not also be rendered as a dialectical law, such as all things tend towards disorder. It's much better, therefore, to have an open-ended toolbox of different systems dynamics, rather than limiting these to a fixed set of laws. The second problem is how these laws place much more emphasis on negation than affirmation, something I find both ontologically problematic and politically. Negation is essential, of course. Without it, the historical role of, for example, class antagonisms would be missed, as it is in liberal history and neoclassical economics, as well as the biological struggle to survive, which is the motor of evolutionary change. But privileging negation too strongly, as dialectical approaches often do, creates its own problems. A scientific ontology which focused solely on negation or contradiction would struggle to account for a whole variety of natural phenomena, like, for example, positive feedback, where mutually supportive interactions lead to continuously amplifying effects. Another might be evolutionary exaptation, whereby new biological functions are produced outside of natural selection. In exaptation, a new trait first emerges in an organism as a mere epiphenomenon or side effect of some other advantageous trait. But then, as the organism's environment changes, that previously irrelevant trait can start to bring a new selective advantage. A classical example is feathers, which evolved for heat retention, but then later enabled flight. A new power had emerged without any struggle taking place within the organism or with others. There is merely a new actualization of a prior potential. And whilst there is no simple one-to-one -one correspondence between ontology and practice, the tendency to always think in terms of struggle and antagonism is likely to affect how one approaches political organising. 
we sadly do often see something like this on the left, in reflexes towards sectarianism, repeated splits in organisations over minor theoretical differences, uncaring and polemical approaches to debate, and the framing of whole social groups as fundamentally counter-revolutionary, with no chance of cooperation or transformation, an ironically undialectical position as I would understand it. A dialectical ontology most appropriate to navigating both science and politics will be one that properly accounts for negation without privileging it. If the notion of dialectics has its multiple sides, even more so does materialism. There are at least three senses of materialism relevant here, and each has its opposite in idealism. An everyday sense, a social and historical sense, and a metaphysical or scientific sense. The everyday notion of materialism relates to a concern with consumer society. To be a materialistic person is to appear preoccupied with acquiring consumer goods, whether it's fast cars, cosmetics or expensive jewellery. Despite this appearing to be a critical term, this is rarely, if ever, what socialists mean by the term materialism. Likewise, the term idealism in popular discourse tends to mean a kind of dreamlike utopianism, someone who always thinks positively and believes the best outcomes are inevitable. This is again rarely what is understood in the philosophical sense, though Marxist critiques of idealism do seem to rely on this implication of wishy-washy naivety in the common meaning. The social historical sense of materialism and idealism, however, has to do with what is the determining force in history. Is it the forces of economic production, or is it the development of ideas? Critics of Jonathan Israel's Radical Enlightenment thesis charged it with idealism in how it deals almost exclusively with social change through the development of intellectual ideas, rather than the changing forces of production and the struggle of oppressed social groups. But it is possible to see both ideas and productive forces as playing a partially determining role in history. Ideas have organising effects on the world, and that impacts the development of production and the shape of class struggle. Think, for example, of how the management techniques of Fordism appearing in the early 20th century created modern mass production and consumption. And in turn, production provides the base for a society to exist at all, such that ideas could emerge. We don't need to depart from Marx and Engels to make that point, as it accords with their notion of base and superstructure. Referring to the economic base and the cultural-political superstructure of society respectively, this is often wrongly understood to mean that the superstructure is absolutely determined by the base. In fact, as Engels later clarified, there is a reciprocal relationship between the two, but that the economic base merely has a stronger influence. Although this base superstructure metaphor is useful when talking about broad social functions, we mustn't lose sight of how there are both material and semiotic, that is, meaning-making, aspects running through all social institutions. Even the reproduction of food is not reducible to the shaping of physical matter by workers, but always involves ideas which help to organise that function. And though social structures and collective effort do typically have greater impact than individuals with ideas, there are both individuals with outsized systemic power, such as presidents, and also historical moments of chaotic dynamics, such as during a revolution, when the decisions of individuals can have greater material impact than they otherwise would. Without accepting that, it is difficult to account for the political biographies of people like Lenin, or the ways in which movements can be sparked by individual traumatic events. Beyond the everyday and social historical, there is the metaphysical sense of materialism and idealism, the one most relevant to science. This has to do with what is taken to be the primary constituent of reality. Is it matter or mind? Or at least that is how the difference is usually framed. 
Idealism is actually a little more complex than this, however. Whilst there have been idealists who argued that reality was nothing but the construction of the human mind, such as George Berkeley, this does not characterise all idealism, and particularly not that of the German idealists like Hegel, who are usually Marxists' presumed targets. Berkeley's subjective idealism is worlds apart from Hegel's absolute idealism. Whilst Hegel does see what he calls the concept as a structuring aspect of reality, this is more like the notion of objects having a form. It is more that the world is like a mind in the sense of structural similarities between thought and world, not that the world is literally created inside the human mind. Indeed, the hard distinction between Hegel as an idealist and Marx as a materialist is somewhat misleading in itself. Hegel's idealism was not immaterialism, it still had a role for matter. The popular section of the phenomenology of spirit on the master and slave dialectic is one example. It is sometimes explained merely in terms of dueling consciousnesses, where the master and the slave look to one another for recognition. But it is also about how the slave's work affects the master. Whilst initially it seems that the slave is the alienated one, and the master a purely independent consciousness, ultimately the slave comes to understand themselves as being the one who creates the world through their work. The master, on the other hand, is alienated from the world through how his desires are always mediated through the slave's work. This is a perspective on consciousness arising from practical activity, even if it is an idealism. And as a side note, Susan Book Morse has argued that this idea was inspired by the Haitian Revolution. And as for Marx, some would be surprised to hear this quote from his Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts of 1844, quote, Consistent naturalism or humanism is distinct from both idealism and materialism, and constitutes at the same time the unifying truth of both. We see also how only naturalism is capable of comprehending the action of world history. End quote. If Marx was a materialist, it was a materialism that centred not matter as such, but the practical activity of human beings. It is fortunate that Marx did not insist on the centrality of matter, because the later crisis in physics brought about by relativity theory and quantum mechanics called its very existence into question. Despite the ignorance of later Marxists, and despite my own criticisms of Lenin, he was well aware of this crisis and how it needed to be responded to. His solution in materialism and imperial criticism was not to abandon materialism, but to redefine it to simply mean objective reality outside our consciousness. And today, Although some of the most popular interpretations of quantum physics are anti-realist, there are a number of realist proposals, such as put forward by David Bohm, or more recently in Carlo Rovelli's Relational Realism, Stuart Kaufman's Realism of Potentia, and Lee Smolin's Real Ensemble Formulation. And interestingly, Smolin has also co-authored a book with Roberto Unger, whose religion of the future we met in previous episodes. Although I support Lenin's re-evaluation of materialism as realism, there is a problem with how he envisages our access to that reality. Lenin held to a copy theory of perception, whereby our experience is an accurate reflection of an objective world, and thus direct, absolute knowledge of the real world was possible. Others at the time had sought a different route around this crisis of physics, by supplanting materialism entirely for experience. Ernst Mach was a physicist who had an impact on the work of Einstein, and whose name you might recognise from the designation for supersonic speeds, Mach 1 being the speed of sound. His theory of imperio-criticism attracted a following among Marxists, and this was what Lenin aimed to combat, a current he saw as a counter-revolutionary idealism. 
one of those followers he most sought to destroy was Alexander Bogdanov. From certain angles, Bogdanov could be mistaken for a fairly standard orthodox Marxist. He was a co-founder of the Bolshevik party and a rival of Lenin's for the leadership. He oversaw a new Russian translation of the three volumes of Marxist Capital and wrote his own courses on economic science. And he spearheaded a proletarian culture, prolet culture movement for the self-education of the working class. But there were also more unorthodox aspects of his practice. He was a science fiction author, whose novels Red Star and Engineer Many depicted a utopian socialist society on Mars. He developed an early systems theory called Tectology that challenged Marxist dogma, which has in recent years been reappraised as a forerunner of later cybernetics and complex systems science. And after ceasing political activity, he began to experiment with blood transfusion, a pursuit which cost him his life. When Lenin and Bogdanov both visited Maxim Gorky on the Italian island of Capri, a photo was taken, as if to underline their differing temperaments, showing Lenin screaming as Bogdanov calmly beats him at chess. The two were also at loggerheads in the political arena, where the outcome was significantly less favourable to Bogdanov. After initially keeping their philosophical disagreements quiet for political reasons, Lenin then turned on Bogdanov, publishing his materialism and imperial criticism as a denunciation of the latter's views. As a result of the dispute, Bogdanov was eventually expelled, his reputation was destroyed and his ideas fell into disrepute, whereas Lenin's text became a canonical work in the Soviet Union. Lenin's attacks on Bogdanov approach his thought as though they were a continuation of Max. Yet despite the apparent similarity in the names of their systems, Max's imperio-criticism and Bogdanov's imperio-monism, the latter is explicitly setting out a critique of Mac. For Mac, the basis of all knowledge is individual experience. For Bogdanov, the basis of all knowledge is collectively organised experience. In other words, there is a real world, but we cannot ever come to know it directly, only through experiment. An alternate translation of Bogdanov's living experience is living experiment. We intervene in the world to see how it responds, but we only ever have access to our experience of that response, not to the underlying reality which produced it. However, we can then communicate this with others and build systems of knowledge which are objective insofar as they consistently describe how material reality functions. They are, again, useful tools, as in Hacking's entity realism. It is not a subjective idealism, as presumed by Lenin and Plekhanov, whereby there is no consistent real world beyond the senses. It is very much a realism, a stance of Bogdanov's confirmed by an essay collection he edited, entitled Studies in the Realist Worldview. If, for Bogdanov, scientific knowledge was based on the collective experience of workers, his tectology gave some indication of what a proletarian science could look like. He began from the labour point of view, developing concepts relating to the experience of workers, appropriate to organising work under a socialist society. Under socialism, for workers to genuinely manage all aspects of production would require the elimination of the divide between manual and mental labour produced under capitalism. Workers would need to navigate a range of knowledges, and hence the holistic systems approach of technology, which is able to articulate a variety of disciplines from biology to psychology to economics and so on. In what he called the sociomorphism between social structure and forms of consciousness, thought and society are mutually entangled. 
forms of consciousness emerge from the social organisation they are embedded in, and in turn consciousness serves to reinforce social organisation. There is a necessity then to actively transform the relations of production and popular consciousness simultaneously. Whilst some elements of technology are dated, like some of his scientific examples, the overall framework remains fairly robust. One key innovation was to focus on systems, or what he called complexes, as organic evolutionary beings struggling to survive. Whether we're speaking of the human body, with its physicality, its perception and language, or if we mean economic structures, or revolutionary organisations, all of these complexes are subject to the evolutionary forces of selection and adaptation. Like Marx, Bogdanov stressed practical activity, but Bogdanov was clearer in applying this to all forms of system. All bodies, not just human work, are defined by the linkages within and between them, by their activities and resistances to others acting upon them, and how these linkages are created and destroyed. In that conjunction and disjunction of linkages, a complex can reach a threshold beyond which a crisis in its organisation occurs, what we might today call bifurcation points and chaos. Many other notions Bogdanov touches upon have their equivalents in the modern sciences, his bi-regulator is effectively the later cybernetic idea of a feedback loop. His assertion that an organised complex is more than the sum of its parts is today referred to as emergence. And the contemporary complexity sciences also take evolution not as a specifically biological phenomenon, but as a general sort of algorithm through which adaptation in complex systems progresses. Whilst these have all subsequently been elaborated more rigorously in complexity and chaos theory, they have also become removed from the revolutionary context and the labour point of view promoted by Bogdanov. Whilst it is unclear whether there was any direct influence on later systems theories, Bogdanov's technology did apparently become familiar to the circles around both Norbert Wiener and Ludwig von Bertalanffy, prior to their development of cybernetics and general systems theory respectively. Whether it is a case of influence or simply parallel evolution, either way Bogdanov provides a potential link between revolutionary theory and modern science. And others have even felt that his work was useful for the spiritual aspects we have been investigating in other episodes. Although Bogdanov did not actually take to the God-building project we introduced last episode, despite Lenin's including him in his denunciations, nonetheless Lunacharsky believed Bogdanov's work provided fertile soil for the cultivation of socialist religious consciousness. A similar link between systems theory and spirituality can be seen in the later social impact of 1960s cybernetics. In the popular imagination, cybernetics, and the prefix cyber which was taken from it, is strongly associated with computers and robotics. This is partly due to the influence of cyberpunk fiction, with its images of technologically enhanced human bodies. But although cybernetics did indeed begin with some important advancements in robotics, such as W. Gray Walter's robot tortoises made in the late 1940s, to reduce cybernetics to this is to miss its key insights. The cyber prefix was derived from the Greek word kybernan, meaning steersmanship, and cybernetics was the science of how any body can come to steer itself in both man-made and organic systems. It did this by identifying mechanisms of control, particularly what are called feedback loops that help to regulate internal processes. In the simple loop of a thermostat that regulates room temperature, information is constantly feeding back. The air temperature is sensed, the difference with the target temperature is calculated, and an instruction to turn the heat on or off is sent out. The new room temperature is then read, and the process begins again, looping indefinitely to maintain a stable temperature. 
Cybernetics took the same principle of feedback loops and uncovered them in all sorts of systems, such as the loops which regulate the economy, or the loops in the human body regulating food, air, water, hormones, and so on. As Mark Fisher says, the term cyborg, or cybernetic organism, is something of a tautology, because all organisms are already cybernetic. Cybernetics has at times been criticised as an inherently capitalist enterprise, the forerunner of today's techno-capitalist network surveillance society, and some of its early research was in military applications like missile targeting, as well as playing a role in the development of capitalist management practices. Others have attacked the central notion of control, seeing this as reflecting a modernist tendency towards domination of nature. But just as the sciences as a whole are a contested space, so too was cybernetics. Whilst the American circle around Norbert Wiener did evolve out of military research in mathematics and engineering, in Britain the focus was much more on the mind. Central figures like W. Gray Walter and Ross Ashby came from psychiatric and neurophysiological backgrounds, and helped to lay the foundations for what would become the modern cognitive sciences. Others, like Gregory Bateson and R.D. Lang, whose notion of ontological security we made use of in episode 1, took this in more radical directions, using cybernetics to challenge the boundaries of individual subjectivity. This cybernetic subject is, if anything, counter-modernist, based on what Andrew Pickering sees as its non-dualism and temporal emergence. On the one hand, there is no duality of mind and matter, or between people and things, but simply different forms of organisation. On the other hand, reality is not merely a fixed, finished thing which we have to measure, but is constantly being made anew by these bodies existing and interacting with the world. In his book The Cybernetic Brain, Pickering shows how these ideas fed into the psychedelic and anti-psychiatry movements via the interest of beat movement artists like William Burroughs, Brian Eno, and Aldous Huxley. And similarly, Daniel Belgrad in his book Culture of Feedback shows how cybernetics also dispersed into the environmental movement through the natural sciences, influencing notions of ecological consciousness and the subversion of Western individualism. Though cybernetics began its life in the US and UK, it was after spreading beyond the West that it began to affect visions of socialist governance. In Russia, cybernetics was at first derided under Stalin as a reactionary pseudoscience in the service of capitalism, or slaveholder science as one put it. It cannot have helped that any science of organisation would likely have been tainted by the association with Bogdanov. A Soviet dictionary of philosophy from 1953 reads, for example, quote, Bukharin and other enemies of the people made use of Bogdanov's science of organisation in their struggle against the construction of socialism in the USSR. End quote. After Stalin, however, under the Khrushchev administration, the attitude flipped, and cybernetics found favour, even being written into the 1961 programme of the Communist Party as Science in the Service of Communism. The influence of cybernetics was seen in the numerous attempts to build a national computer network to enable moneyless distribution and economic planning. This communist internet was in planning a number of years prior to the US ARPANET project that formed the modern internet. Unfortunately, it seems that the party feared that such a distributed information network would mean relinquishing centralised control over the economy, and one of the most advanced of these projects, OGAS, was denied funding in 1970. After this, cybernetics lost favour again, its terminology holding on more as a means of conserving the existing administrative hierarchies and power structures, as the historian Slava Gerovich puts it, rather than for developing revolutionary new forms of governance. Somewhere where the political application of cybernetics was taken further, 
although still abortively, was in Chile, under the socialist Allende government. As the first socialist government in Latin America to come to power through democratic elections, they were keen to avoid the problems of both Western capitalism and Soviet communism. The question was how to maintain stability and security in the global whole with its socialist principles, whilst fostering and maintaining freedom in the local parts. They turned to a British cyberneticist named Stafford Beer, whose work dealt with precisely this problem, in order to help them design their new socialist economic system. Beer had come from a management background, and the crossover of this and the British cybernetic focus on the mind can be seen in the title of his major work, The Brain of the Firm. He envisaged a model for how extremely complex systems like the mind, a biological organism, a firm, or a whole economy, can achieve both stability and rapid development in a conflict-filled environment. His alternative definition of cybernetics was the science of effective organisation. For Beer, the notion of cybernetic control did not have anything to do with domination, and indeed the titles of some of his other works, such as Designing Freedom, should make that clear. Control is self-control, self-steering, the self-organising processes of bodies that allow them to define and achieve goals in tandem with an environment. Together with a team of Chilean engineers and cybernetic theorists, Beer devised Project Cybersyn. This was a computer network that would allow local producers to share data to help plan economic activity without the need for markets. It had even reached quite an advanced stage. The cover photo of Eden Medina's Cybernetic Revolutionaries shows the Star Trek-esque 1970s futuristic control room with swivel chairs, electronic screens and a diagram of the economic nervous system, what he called the viable systems model, adorning the wall. But the scheme was cut short by the coup of General Pinochet, which ousted Allende and set off a reign of terror against the left. This inaugurated the first experiments of the neoliberal shock doctrine that would begin spreading globally, decimating public services and bringing mass economic suffering. The project was dismantled and members had to flee. Beer himself, by the time his experience in Chile was over, had turned from a highly successful steward of capitalism to a socialist hippie that spent the rest of his life holed up in the Welsh hills. Before we leave Chile, it's important that we note two of those advisors to Project Cybersyn, the biologists Humberto Maturana and Francisco Varela. Today, these two are best known for their work in describing the formal outlines of life through the concept of autopoiesis, or self-production. An autopoietic system continually reproduces its own internal structure, as well as its external boundary with its environment. Think of the skin which covers your body, the layout of your organs, and how their cells are constantly shedding and being replaced. This creation of a boundary provides a body with a certain amount of autonomy from its environment, maintaining internal structural integrity against external disturbances. In order for this self-maintenance to be possible, however, there needs to be an inflow and outflow of matter and information. Just as we are constantly taking in food and sense information from our environment, so too does the bacteria cell in different ways. That autonomy is therefore only relative, and this constant relationship with its outside means an autopoietic body must co-evolve with its environment. Such environments are themselves made up of other autopoietic bodies, which through their interaction and co-adaptation over time become coupled in their internal structure. Given the level of abstraction of autopoiesis, it has subsequently been applied beyond the natural scientific realm to include social and conceptual bodies. Wherever we see a network of forces that reproduces its own boundary and internal organisation, 
through a material semiotic inflow and outflow, we are seeing autopoiesis. In the case of a social system, this boundary will not necessarily be a physical membrane, but may be a communicative boundary, such as who is or is not considered a member of an organisation. Physical boundaries can of course be used to enforce a social boundary, such as with borders or the walls of government buildings. Corporations, universities, communities and cities can therefore also fulfil this definition of autopoiesis, just as a human body or a single-celled organism can. From its inception, autopoiesis was also a theory of mind, the minimal conditions of life being also the minimal conditions of cognition. Autopoietic approaches to cognition conceive of the mind not as a thing, but as a process, involving internal and external relations. If minds are autopoietic, then what we said about autopoiesis in general also applies here, such as how minds are on the one hand autonomous, but coupled with others and co-evolving with them. There is no such thing, therefore, as a completely individual or independent mind, but rather one with relative autonomy. These embodied approaches to the mind are sometimes placed within the broad category of 4E cognition. Embodied, embedded, extended and inactive. This framework refers to how cognition is, one, dependent upon characteristics of the whole body and cannot be reduced to the brain. Two, always embedded in larger socio-cultural contexts, with actions made meaningful through that external history. Three, extended through tools, whether these are hammers, phones, even language. And four, inactive in that we are always learning through doing things and interacting with the world, not simply through sitting and thinking. Bringing together all of these perspectives on science, matter, life and mind, it's worth briefly returning to the post-colonial critique of enlightenment touched on in the first episode. A handy summary of some of the typical arguments is found in the introduction by Daniel Carey and Lynn Fester to the essay collection Postcolonial Enlightenment. Quote, in its quest for the universal, enlightenment occludes cultural difference and refuses moral and social relativity. Inasmuch as its values are identified as coextensive with modernity, the enlightenment naturalizes a teleology in which all roads lead inexorably to an episteme associated with the West. Frozen in the dark, backward and abysm of the primitive or savage, non-Western populations are stripped of the agency and historicity that underwrites civilised advancement. The doctrine of progress, in turn, legitimates imperial conquest under the guise of the civilising mission, while the celebration of reason disqualified other belief systems as irrational or superstitious." End quote. I've already argued that cultural relativity can sit alongside a shared or universal underlying reality, but the notion of autopoiesis can help us be more specific. Autopoietic systems are meaning-making systems. They evolve to attach meaning to their sensory inputs, constructing webs of knowledge about the world they encounter and how it responds to them. There is a constant perception-action loop where our response to our environment and our abstract understanding of it is constantly updated. This extends from the very basic biosemiotics of single-celled organisms, some of which are able to sense concentrations of chemicals and so propel themselves towards or away from foods and poisons, all the way up to the human development of motivating affects like fear and desire. Such meaning-making systems are not fixed and transcendent, handed down from on high. They arise within bodies through their lifetime of interactions and prior evolution. What is effectively universal among humans is this formal outline, this capacity and need for meaning, 
as well as the shared biological needs for food and air. There is no disqualification of the mythical. In fact, the post-colonial theorist Sylvia Winter, blending autopoiesis and the ideas of Franz Fanon, argued that a mythical or narrative aspect is necessary to what she calls sociopoiesis. As humans, we do not only share brute biological functions, but also the need for symbolic life. And she points to this specifically to develop a post-colonial notion of the human, one that is genuinely universal and emancipatory, unlike what she called Enlightenment Man, with a capital M. If mind is inseparable from life, then reason can be seen as fundamental to all human thought, not merely the apogee achieved by white, educated European men. The autopoietic cognition of most beings is unlikely to involve what we would understand as conscious experience. I'm not suggesting that sunflowers feel pain, for example. But the distinction between reason and unreason is not the same as the conscious versus the unconscious. In the sense of reason understood by Enlightenment thinkers like Kant and Hegel, reason is the faculty that develops overarching principles. This is distinguished from sensibility, which is the reception of sense data, and the understanding, which categorises and evaluates that sensibility. Reason allows us to predict, to make inferences about our environment, and about things which we are not currently experiencing at all. But despite how this may have been presented by some Enlightenment thinkers as a knowing and educated process, it is present universally. Contemporary cognitive science has shown that causal inference and the development of principles is a core part of everyone's thought from a very young age, even if we would struggle to verbally articulate what these are. The kind of conscious argumentation usually associated with reason is built upon this foundation, but makes up only a sliver of the principle-building faculties of the mind. This is what I mean by embodied reason, the general capacity of principle-building, arising purely from bodies existing and acting in the world. We can even retain a sense of teleology, that is, end-directedness. This is usually taken to mean a kind of linear and external or transcendent telos, a future which is set in stone and we are merely being dragged towards. But we can also imagine an internal or immanent telos, the direction and ultimate endpoint that will occur if a body continues developing in a certain direction. Think of how a runner will reach the end of her route if she continues to run. It is not that the finish line is pulling her towards it, but her internal dynamics are driving her forward. This is what we see in autopoietic bodies. Its meaning-making system drives it towards certain outcomes and away from others, creating a kind of direction of development. This is what the biological anthropologist Terence Deacon calls teleodynamic. But this is not a single linear timeline. Different bodies have differing paths, and may have to struggle against one another, entering into relations of competition and cooperation. If there is some clear global telos, such as today the Earth's trajectory towards climate crisis, then it is the emergent result of all these lower-level interactions, not something eternal and inevitable. Although Hegel is often placed as a central culprit in left-wing critiques of Enlightenment thought, in my view these alternate understandings of the universal, of reason and teleology can be found in Hegel's philosophy. His account of reason, for example, is often taken as an abstract, disembodied spiritual phenomena, and his wider philosophy of nature seemed to be of secondary importance. But in a recent book, Karen Eng argues that for Hegel, self-consciousness and reason must be understood as arising out of and reflecting the dynamics of life itself. Hegel, building on a passing observation by Kant, 
saw life as purposiveness, having a purpose. That this is not an external purpose imposed by necessity, but again an internal purpose that arises from the living body itself. In the Observation of Nature section of the Phenomenology of Spirit, Hegel notes three moments of this embodiment, sensibility, irritability and reproduction. That is, there is an openness to sensing the environment, a reaction to that sense, and the self-remaking of the body's organisation. In short, this sounds remarkably like autopoiesis. The further development of self-consciousness builds on this, involving an increasing complexity of reflection of the body upon itself, the senses turning around on themselves in a kind of feedback loop. Mind is therefore continuous with life, just as it was for Maturana and Varela. It's not my goal, however, to defend Hegel from all criticism, although some valuable work has been done in recent years in re-evaluating Hegelian thought for 21st century politics, such as Todd McGowan's Emancipation After Hegel. Rather, as with my approach to the Enlightenment as a whole, I feel no compulsion to totally reject or totally embrace any one thinker. And such as the historical and contemporary impact of Hegel on leftist thought, there is more reason than with most others to try and salvage what we can. Having today set out some of the scientific perspectives I'm drawing from, and in the previous episode explained my understanding of the secular political application of spirituality, I'll next turn to socialism itself. The next episode will look at the capitalist system and some of the central terms of Marxist historical materialism to see how they might be reinterpreted through the framework I have been building. I hope you'll join me for episode four in a couple of weeks. See you there. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash onalifeglug. You can find me on Twitter also at onalifeglug. And if you're interested in my previous work, check out my book, The Shock Doctrine of the Left, which is available from Party Books.